Well, we wrap up this morning with chapter 4 of Romans, and thus we wrap up with this first part of Paul's letter. So last week, uh, we saw that justification by faith is not something new. It's not a new concept, not a new religion. Paul was not writing here, not presenting some new way to approach God. Last week in the first half of chapter 4, using the Old Testament figures of Abraham and David to make his point, the Apostle Paul explains that it's always been this way. That it's always been by grace, by faith. Well, in particular, we saw Paul take us back to Genesis 15, uh, where God promises to provide. Where God promises to bless Abraham, then childless, uh, promises to bless him with a son, and that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky. And Paul quotes verse 6 of Genesis 15, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. He was given right standing with God by believing God and His promises. In other words, by taking God at His word. Well, this week in the second half of chapter 4, Paul continues with this central Old Testament figure of Abraham... And we get to see what real faith looks like. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, uh, you should find that on page 941. Well, let's pray and then we'll hear this part of God's Word. We come to you uh, this morning once again, God of all ages. You who are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You who are never changing, our solid rock. You who are true to your promises. And we ask to hear from you now that you would, that you would work your truth and your grace deeper into our hearts. That we might live more fully by faith. Amen. And so, Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Hear the word of God. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of God. Well, the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So what does that look like? What does real faith look like? Well, here we see that real faith rests on grace, and real faith rests on promise. It rests on grace, and it rests on promise. And so first, real faith rests on grace. You know, grace is an amazing thing. Amazing because the gospel is the reversal of human religion. What does human religion say? Well, it basically says, keep your nose clean, do the right thing, and God will accept you. But then the gospel comes in, and the gospel says, no, you're a mess, and you can't do the right thing. But God smiles on sinners. So look to Him, and He will accept you just as you are. In other words, grace interrupts. Grace interrupts the messiness of our messy, broken human lives. It breaks in and does something new. And as Paul explains here in verse 16, explaining that that our salvation rests on grace, which is why it depends on faith. It's pure gift. Pure gift for undeserving sinners. Nothing we could earn, because as we've already heard, we all fall short. Only something we can receive with open hands is a gift. So three important words that, we have, that we've come across so far in our study of Romans, these, these first uh, few chapters. Uh, three important words, justice, mercy, and grace. Well, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Let me say that again. Justice is getting what you deserve. 
Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And what do we deserve? Well, we all deserve death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And and the wages, what have we earned? The wages of sin is death. But in Christ, that's not what we get. In Christ, we get what we don't deserve. So what, what does Paul say in the previous chapter? We are justified by His grace as a gift. To be received by faith. Grace. What a beautiful thing. And we see it play out in the life of Abraham. Which is why Paul speaks of him here in Romans 4. Now again, as you heard last week, Abraham is one of the great figures in the Old Testament. And yet, a quick read of the account of his life in Genesis reveals that he was also one of the great sinners. Okay, maybe you looked back this week, or maybe you already know, but looking at the life of Abraham, I mean, we see Abraham continually doubt God, over and over and over. God promising to Abraham, and Abraham saying, well, yeah, but how am I going to know? I mean, you're just God, but how am I going to know this? Continually doubting, questioning his promises of a son, of land, of descendants. We also see Abraham lie about his wife at her expense, telling powerful rulers that she's his sister as a way to to protect himself, allowing them to take her and sleep with her. And then we also see Abraham trying to bring God's promise of a son to fruition taking it into his own hands by sleeping with his wife's maidservant, even though the promise had been made to him and Sarah. So, I mean, a quick look at Abraham, and you see that here is a great doubter. And not only that, but at times a horrible husband. Abraham, an example of real faith, Really? I mean, you know, seems more like an example of real failure. And yet both Paul and the writer of Hebrews uphold him as an example of great faith. So what gives? Well, what gives is grace. Looking at the life of Abraham should encourage all of us. It should give all of us, no matter what we have done, no matter what we have done, it should give us great hope and encourage us in our weakness, in our struggles, in our own doubts, in our failures. Uh, Bono, uh, lead singer of U2, Bono puts it this way. It's a mind-blowing concept that God, the God who created the universe, might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. 
It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of human religion. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid things. Now that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep, deep trouble. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins to the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. I need grace. Abraham's life was messy. Bono's life is messy. And so is yours and mine. But as a fellow pastor once said, grace comes to the messy places and thrives. That's right. Grace thrives in the very mess of our lives. Not when we think we've got it all together, when we think we're so accomplished and competent. No, but when we're actually in touch with reality, when we feel the mess of our lives, the weak places, the dark places, the struggles, the helplessness. Now, thinking of messy places, uh, it, it reminds me of my kids when they were preschoolers. They were learning to, to draw, color, paint. You know, we would go through reams of paper uh, like nothing. I mean, it just went like that. Well, I, I've, I've got several of these uh, early works of art on the back of my door in my office. So if you just walk by, you don't see them. But if you're inside and I close the door, you'll see some of those works. And I brought one today. So here's a picture that one of my girls drew me uh, when she was about three years old. Now, it's kind of messy, as you can see, kind of squiggly, blotchy, spotty colors all over this yellow sheet of paper. But when I got it, I said, honey, this, this is beautiful. I mean, this is great. What is this? Well, it's you, Daddy. And you know, when she said that, I smiled, and I gave her a huge hug and said thank you. I mean, it was messy, yes, but also beautiful to me. And why? Because it had been offered in faith, trusting that I loved her that I accepted her and I credited it to her as righteousness. I credited it to her as beautiful art. Grace thrives in the messy places and real faith rests on grace. Well, second, real faith rests on promise. God had promised Abraham a son. God had promised Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. 
Paul highlights that here in verses 13, 17, 18. Really the whole passage. But let's, uh, let's read again just verses 18 through 22. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul explains here that Abraham hoped against all hope. He believed God. He didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Really? I mean, has Paul read back in Genesis? You know, I mean, it appears that actually Abraham did waver. Doesn't it? But here's our problem. You see, we often confuse faith and faithfulness. We often live as if we are justified by faithfulness rather than being justified by faith. Now, as we've already seen, a quick look at Abraham's life shows that he struggled to be faithful. Just as a quick look at our own lives reveals that we too struggle to be faithful. But friends, we aren't justified by our faithfulness. We're justified by faith. Now Abraham's faithfulness wavered, yes. But according to the Bible, his faith didn't. Okay, so, so, so how do we explain that? How are we to, to understand what that means? Well, I want you to think for a moment. Remember what, what Jesus said when he was talking about faith, comparing it to a mustard seed. I mean, faith the size of a, of a mustard seed can move mountains. And as, as you may know, the mustard seed was, was, was known as that time, was understood to be the smallest of all seeds. And so what what Jesus was getting at, what he was saying, is that the smallest faith is significant. In other words, it's the presence of faith that matters. No matter how small or how insignificant it seems. One biblical scholar states, Abraham did not always live out his faith. His obedience was not perfect, his trust fluctuated, but his faith was never extinguished, no matter how small. He hung on to God's promises, even in his own flaws and failings. And as he did so, he was strengthened in faith. He was able to look at each mistake and say, This has reminded me that my only hope is to trust in God's promise and to trust in God to fulfill that promise. 
You see, in the end, Abraham didn't trust his own faithfulness. He trusted in the faithfulness of God. God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations. He repeats this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and then in Genesis 21, his son Isaac is born. And Abraham is 100 years old. I mean, Sarah's pushing 100 as well. And in part, the impossible has been made possible. In part, the promise is fulfilled. And what a celebration they must have had. You know, it it makes me think of my grandmother. So, you know, I think what a a crazy sight, what a a joyous and yet bizarre celebration. If, If my grandmother, who lived to be 101, if my grandmother in assisted living, if she had been barren and yet had given birth to a son in her old age. I mean, no way, right? Well, humanly speaking, there was no way Abraham and Sarah could have a child. No way. But God had promised. But God had promised. And as one commentator puts it, faith always looks at the problems in light of the promises. Abraham knew that God could keep his promises because of his power. And he knew that God would keep his promises because of his faithfulness. Faith always looks at the problems in light of the promises. Thinking about problems, we move from chapter 21 of Genesis to chapter 22. And Abraham faces a new challenge, a new problem, one that is more difficult and more heartbreaking than anything he has ever faced in his entire life. So it's about 20 years or so after Isaac's birth, and God says, Abraham, do you trust me? And Abraham says, yes, Lord, I trust you. Here I am, I trust you. And God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, you know the story. You know what happens. Abraham and Isaac go to the mountain that God leads them to. Isaac notices that they brought wood and fire, but... But absent, he notices there's, there's no animal for the sacrifice. And so, so he says, hey, Dad, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham simply replies, God will provide. Finally, after getting everything ready, Abraham binds Isaac and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. But just as Abraham is about to bring his knife down on his son, God says, stop. Stop. And God provides a sacrifice, a lamb, a ram for the offering. The writer of Hebrews chapter 11 says this, 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, in a manner of speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Now, of course, we know this story is just a picture of what was to come. When the Lord would ultimately provide through the promise of his son. You know, life is tough. It's hard. I don't have to convince you of that. Our sins make a mess, huge mess. We've got a lot of problems, and the problems are real. The problems are very real. But in a sense, the promises are more real. What I mean is this. The problems will one day perish. But the promise of God will forever prevail. And so here, now, today, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk trusting in God, not with the physical eyes that can see, but with the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of faith. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The promise to Abraham that God will provide, it's also the promise to us who are his offspring, to us who share the faith of Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of us all, the father of all who believe. Real faith rests on promise. So what do we learn here from Abraham? In other words, what does real faith look like? Well, it it rests on grace, and it rests... On promise. And ultimately we learn here that it's not about the strength of our faith, how strong or weak it is. What matters most is the object of your faith. What you put your trust in. You know, think about it for a moment. And actually you probably didn't even think twice about it. But when you came in this morning... You sat down in that chair, that blue chair that you are sitting in right now, and it's holding you up. And it doesn't matter if you sat down with a weak faith or a strong faith in that chair. You entrusted yourself completely to it, and it's holding you up. And so in that case, the object of your faith, this chair, is strong and secure. How much more so with Jesus How much more so with the God of the universe? 
Now, maybe at times, like me, maybe sometimes you too cry out to Jesus in your your desperation, your weakness. You cry out in, in a weary faith. Jesus, help me. I just, I just don't have strong faith. I believe, but I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. Well, guess what? That's true faith. That's honest faith. Because in the end, it's not about the quality of your faith or the quantity of it, but about the object of your faith. It's about Jesus. He who was faithful to the end. He who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Brothers and sisters, He loves you. He died for your sin. He rose for your justification. So trust in Him and in Him alone. For the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your faithfulness. For calling us to Yourself. And for the, for the gift of grace and for the fulfillment of promise. And so we ask now, we pray, help us. Help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen. Well, I'd now like to invite our new members, the Rudys, if you'd come forward and stand over here. Uh, And as is our tradition, if you would like to during the closing hymn, uh, you can come down the center aisle and step over and greet them and welcome them to the community of Grace Covenant. And now please stand for our closing hymn.